you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on Amazon Prime, digital, at Places Everywhere, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manishal. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making my third, Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer and director Paul Schneider on the show to talk about his latest film, A Holiday I Do, which is playing now on Tello Films. After that, we play another round of The Game. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm flustered. I'm flustered. There's too much going on. There's too many things happening. But I would say the things of note to bring up right now, instead of dragging you into a, a therapy session, would be that we're just about to sign our casting director for Best Friends Forever. And we're going to work together to just attach one talent, one actor. They gave me a rate for the whole thing, which was actually fairly reasonable, and just one actor. And the one actor is even more reasonable, go figure. And so we're going in that direction because we think that it will really incentivize any of the people who are interested in our project to come forward. And then if not, it'll help us independently seek financing. So that's what we're doing right now. When you say more reasonable, like are you offering like a, like a big sum of money or are you doing like what you did before, like a, like a you know, like minimum SAG minimum offer or like what are you? Oh, no, I mean like there? the casting director's rate is mm. like the skill is one number for casting the whole film and oh, one number for I one see. attachment. Oh, and clearly the one attachment's a little bit cheaper. And we're going to start there. And if we want to keep going, we're going to work with her to attach more talent. Nice. That's good. That's, yeah. that's great that you didn't have to commit to the whole thing in order to get them on board. Because, yeah, yeah you, know, you know, you know, you don't know what the, the experience is going to be like until you go through trying to get the first person. I don't know. And also, it's like sometimes casting directors want to get paid before anything happens, or at least partial payment. And it's like, Oh, of course. Geez, yeah. the, the movie hasn't even been, you know, money hasn't even been raised for the movie yet. Like we have no money. Like we, it's really tough. Well, you know, she's very generous in that I told her, I wrote an email just being like, this is where the money's coming from. We want you to tell me what you want to be paid. Like, tell us what you want to be paid. We're not going to offer you a rate. You tell us what you're willing to work with. And we're just oh, going nice. to try to hit that number because I, the whole, you know, the zeitgeist behind this film is to not try to undermine people. <laughs> so we're yeah, working on it. Nice. That's awesome. What are, what are you up to? Did I talk about this already that I went to the screening of my film Parka at a film festival? I know you mentioned you were promoting that it was happening last week, but you right, didn't talk right. about it. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, I went with my mom and my oh. co-director, Marcella. We, we it was the three of us. It was a really small you know, amount of people there. I mean, I guess they had sold out their last screening. So they were like a little disappointed that it was not as big of a deal uh, this time, but it was, uh, it was cool to see the movie with an audience. This is the first time I'd ever seen the movie with an audience before. First time I saw the movie on a big screen. Nice. So that was fun. And yeah, then the movie, it was played with a feature called faceless faceless after dark, I think is, is the title. It was really good. It stars a woman who was in that movie terrifier, which was such a big yeah. deal. Yeah. Jenna Cannell, Cannell, I think is uh, their name. But yeah, anyways, they did a great job. Really great performance. 
Yeah, it was really cool. So, uh, you know, I enjoyed that. My mom, <laughs> she didn't really watch slashers or horror movies. So it was a little bit of a <laughs> of an experience oh. for her <laughs> to watch a movie where, where lots of people are getting murdered uh, in gruesome ways. But yeah, we talked about it on the, the drive home and then I kind of got it because at first her reaction was like, people who want to watch these kind of movies are sick. <laughs> and and you're like, like, that's me, mom. I'm that's one of those people. <laughs> and all the people I make movies for. <laughs> so I was explaining to her like what I get out of violence and, you know, what I think, you know, is fun with with murder, with with killings and stuff. And like there's a certain way that it's done that I really enjoy and can be really fulfilling you know these 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 kills and i think she understood it when i explained it to her that way you know but i think otherwise she's just like people are just watching movies about people <laughs> and then she goes on her funny rants about like and there's actually people who watch real killing movies online where they pe- re- kill real people it's like the wow. snuff films yes <laughs> so we don't need to talk about snuff films right now <laughs> but anyways <laughs> it was really fun and uh it was a it was kind of invigorating it was like oh watching a really creative movie that like these people pulled together and made, I don't know how big the budget was, but I'm assuming it was, it was not huge. Yeah. It was cool. It got me thinking like, okay, what do I want to do in in my script? Like, how should I approach my kills? Like, what, what am I trying to do that they did well? Like, like, you know, or, or do something differently that's like going to kind of work in in, in a way that's better. Or like, what should I, it was just really got me thinking and got me excited uh, to see like an indie feature like that. And then I won a gingerbread house at the raffle which was nice. amazing. And then I made it the next day with my daughter. So that <laughs> it was kind of incredible. Oh. But yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I did write a little bit. I don't remember when. I think maybe Saturday night I wrote like a half a page or something. So Still that was good. cool. I mean, hey, if I'm opening it and looking at it, like that is a win. I'm working on the breakdown for that movie for my producer Jeff right now. And uh, Sayla, who I worked with before, she's a director and the writer. Man, there's a lot of locations, <laughs> which makes it really hard for a breakdown because you have to do, you have to like figure out how the heck are they going to shoot all these locations in 22 days? It's like insane. Yeah. Especially since they have like the opening of the movie, it goes through all these, these different time periods with these, these, the main characters. Like, Oh, you've talked age. about this before. Yeah. Oh my God. It was crazy. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's really challenging to figure out so I'm, but I'm, I'm i'm making a progress i got like a couple days i'm um, scheduled and you know i got 20 more but I, I feel like i'm getting my head wrapped around the movie in a way where it's gonna go pretty quick it's just it's just so hard when you're like with you got two kids and even with beth being home it's just so hard to like carve out an hour or two to get work done when they're awake you know yeah. and then by the time they're asleep you're so tired so but today today and tomorrow are my days where i'm watching the kids by myself for a few hours so i have to like just buckle through and then Thursday and Friday, I'll get to be, those. Those will be my work days to finish this. I'm trying to get it wrapped. I'm trying to send them the first pass of it on Friday. So that way they can look at it over the weekend. And then if they want some more work done on it, I can try to get it done. So they have a fully done breakdown yeah. by the end of the, the year. But we'll see. But it's going well. It's fun. It's also this is also engaging my brain to like do this part of the filmmaking of filmmaking to like, you know, figure out the schedule and like how is it all, all the pieces fit. Because it makes you think about like when you're writing something how are your pieces going to fit? Like, how are you going to make it all make sense and work? And like, luckily with my movie, I, I have like, it's, it's not as many like small little pieces, you know? And there's not a lot of like different, like this movie takes a, it takes place in like America. 
like in middle America and in Florida and then in, in Puerto Rico. So it's like three different, very different places. Although Florida and Puerto Rico can, I'm sure you can like, you know, kind of cheat that, you know, but like Indiana or whatever, that's tough. So, but I'm, but for me, it's like a lot easier cause it's all like sci-fi and it's isn't This is, this is based on a real story. So like they, they're stuck with like what actually happened. Like with me, it's like, Oh, I can, I can change whatever I want. <laughs> I want this to happen in a, in a location that I can control in a set or in a city or where I could just change it. So that's kind of nice. But you know, what also is very nice is to check us out on Patreon. This is the way that the show keeps alive that we are able to pay our wonderful editor, Jeff. The whole Making Movies is Hard system keeps chugging along is through our Patreon. So thank you all to all our Patreon patrons for supporting the show. You can check us out at www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. If you give $2 or more, you get access to the whole back catalog of episodes, which pretty soon, I haven't done it yet, but I think over the holidays, I'm going to do another slashing because we just wow. turned to, to episode four, 450. So we're in a new season. We're in season 10 now of the what? show. Yeah, crazy. So that means that you, you'll get, as, as a regular listener, you have access to season nine and 10. But eight will be gone soon. I think seven is already gone. And if it's not gone, it'll be gone very soon. So like you're going to have very little episodes to listen to very soon. But yeah, but if you want to, if you're listening to the show for the first time, you want to dive back down to all the episodes, being a Patreon patron is the only way to do it. Also, we want to talk about the Blood and Popcorn Film Festival. That's actually the film festival I was at on Wednesday. It's, it, it was more like a special screening. Like it wasn't their actual big, you know, whatever with all their short films and features and everything and awards, but it was just like a, a screening for Blood and Popcorn. But they're a micro horror film festival that celebrates Bay Area filmmakers and spotlights international talents year round with multiple horror film screenings, which is one of the ones I was a part of. You can enjoy the best curated collection of horror short films and features that offer spine chilling frights and gory delights. Their regular deadline for submissions is tomorrow, the 19th, but you will have till January 16th, January 16th, that is, to get it in your submissions and you can use the waiver code Evil Pop 3 to get 50% off your submission. So find out more about them at www.filmfreeway.com slash blood and popcorn film festival. But yeah, check that out. And without any more delay, here is Liz's chat with Paul Schneider. Paul, what's the elevator pitch for a holiday I do? Well, first, hello. Great to be here. <laughs> so the elevator pitch for a holiday I do. First, it is a holiday rom-com. It is about a single mom and farm girl named Jane. She is the best woman for her ex-husband's Christmas wedding. She is being pushed by her mother to date. That is not going so well. But fate has other plans, and she bumps into Sue, the beautiful wedding planner of that previous said Christmas wedding. So as they fall for each other, of course, as any good holiday drama, there's drama. There's a blizzard. There's a visit from a banker to foreclose on the family farm. And so at the end of the day, um, Jay needs a Christmas miracle to save the farm and save the wedding. How many days did you shoot? So I'm going to give you a short answer. And if you want to come <laughs> back to this in the middle of the interview, we can talk about it more because there's a, a bunch of scheduling rejiggling that actually could be right into why making movies is hard, <laughs> but it's supposed to be 16 days. 
at the end of the day, it was the equivalent of 19 days of filming, um, but the equivalent cost of about 24 days. But we can go into that later. What can you speak of with regard to the budget? So I can say that it was a, a SAG ultra low budget feature. But the other thing I can say about the budget is your standard Hallmark style Christmas film is going to be 10 or 20 times the budget of our Christmas film. What was, I mean, I know that another podcast listener wrote the script, but could you tell us a little bit about the origin of the idea and how it was developed? Sure. So it actually goes back to 2019. My wife and I, she's part of the LGBTQ community. We were looking for Christmas rom-coms to watch, and she was looking for one with queer main characters. And so in 2019, this was like right before the uh, the Kristen Stewart Happiest Season came out. And this was also right before Tello released their Season of Love. And we'll come back to Tello. They're actually the distributor for our film in this uh, upcoming Christmas season. So this was in 2019, right before there's any diversity to be found in um, your your standard Hallmark or Lifetime Christmas films. So I just finished my previous feature. And since we couldn't find one, I said, hey, let's make one ourselves. So that was kind of the start of it. Me and my wife, we collaborated with the screenwriter. We put together the story and we shortly after that did a Kickstarter for the project. I hate Kickstarter and just crowdfunding in general. I've been through four of them and none of them have met our goals. But the issue with this one, like it had some really good early traction. It was chosen as a project we love by by Kickstarter. But our campaign ended the same time the COVID unemployment checks ended. So if I was a backer and I didn't know where my next meal was coming from, I wouldn't invest in a film either. So just bad timing there. Darn COVID. So that was 2020. Since 2020, we took about a year to uh, raise, raise private money with family and friends. So we, we got the investment money that way. So we began production in 2022. This was January. So this was, again, darn COVID. This was right after, you know, the holidays um, and in get-togethers. So this was like an all-time high in new COVID cases. We're talking like 900,000 new COVID cases a day where... When they shut us down in March the year before, it was like 250,000 new cases. Luckily, there was, of course, a vaccine in the picture at this time. So we, you know what, let's come back to the the whole COVID issue. We can talk about that more if you want to, because that's another reason why, especially this was hard making this movie. It took some rescheduling, but in October of 2022, so nine months later, we, we finally finished filming. So at that point, it was too late to make a, you know, a holiday 2022 release, which was the original goal. So that gave us an extra year to perfect the edit. But of course, it was still a rush to the finish to, to get it out there. So the film will be releasing on uh, November 10th of, of this year. Mm. So all in all, we're talking a four-year start to finish journey from the initial concept in 2019 holiday season to releasing in uh, this current holiday season. And that's pretty short. I know you're saying it like it's there's a lay after delay, but four years is a pretty economic time period. And you answered my next question. So I'm just going to double down on this previous question. So you were looking at the dearth of queer content or queer holiday content, Mm -hmm. and you found a screenwriter. Was there any sort of 
muse or story that led to this narrative being created? Or is it just that you went to and you found a screenwriter and you said, write me an awesome holiday rom-com that has queer characters? Sure, sure. And we can come back to how kind of the universe has a funny way to uh, this becomes this becomes this to guide you along your journey. But it wasn't just any screenwriter. It was um, it was a screenwriter that I got to know through a previous film. And it was something to where, as far as the, the story, it was really me, my wife, and the screenwriter. Her name's Melinda Bryce. She's a big fan of the podcast, by the way. So we sat down and we, you know, it was a complete collaboration to where we had a spreadsheet and minute by minute, beat by beat, we had 90 lines on the spreadsheet on what the scenes would be. And actually, I revisited that spreadsheet the other day, and it's pretty darn close as far as what the final story is. Some scenes changed order. Of course, they changed order again in the final edit, but um, it's, it's, the story was there from the beginning. Mm. This is kind of a new question we ask, which I don't know how well it's, it's working, but I'm going to ask you, if you could change one thing about the film in any way, what would it be? So to be honest, I, I actually just got through the delivery process. So I had to put together the DCP for the theater. I had to separately put together the, the DVD. I had to separately put together for streaming. So this was already passed, you know, many times through the film, through QC. So I pretty much a long time ago had, had called it complete. But going through the process to review it these last few times, because since they were de different delivery formats, I just wanted to make sure that there wasn't an issue with the export. Yeah. But to be able to watch it through again, you know, I'm like, you know what? This is really darn good. I wouldn't change much. And actually, one of the times I was a little short on time. So I played through at like 10 times speed mm -hmm. just because I knew it shot by shot. I, I knew it was all there that I, you know, spot checked for audio. But playing it through 10 times speed, I was like, man, there's a lot of really good camera movement. And, and you don't see it at normal speed because it's a slow dolly move or, or that. So to see it on 10 times speed, that was just a really interesting exercise. But before the final edit, there definitely was scenes that I was unhappy with. But luckily, with a little bit of creative editing, I was able to solve them to where I was happy with it. There was just one scene that didn't have the energy we wanted because on set, we had issues where actually the uh, the grip truck broke down. So I had like skeleton crew for that particular scene. It was, a, it was a party bus scene. The party bus was not as we expected. It was snowing. It would be unsafe to go in and out of this party bus to show any kind of party activity. So we had to just film completely different than planned. So that scene was rough for a while. But, you know, throw in some stock footage and a little <laughs> bit of creativity. And, you know, it made something that was, uh, you know, something that was watchable and didn't take away from the story. So there was a, a few other scenes that I was not thrilled with at the beginning. But after some polishing and test screenings, and we, we figured it out. So at the end of the day, you know, I'm quite pleased with the final film. There were scenes that were left on the, the, the chopping block that we, we never got to film because of the schedule. That would have been nice to have, but you know, I honestly forgot they existed for for you know most of the time. So I'm very very pleased with with the final film. I want to go back to that comment you said about the Kickstarter campaign, and this wasn't even something I was gonna ask you about, but I'm inspired to from our conversation right. right now. So I think a lot of us are experiencing thwarted moment 
due to the pandemic or the writer strike or sad strike. And you go and you put so much time and energy into crowdfunding and it's exhausting. And I know why you would I know why you would hate having to deal with that. I get that. How do you rally the troops from a failed crowdfunding campaign to then crowdsourcing from your friends and family? Like how how do you kind of twist momentum that may have died down into a whole new effort to get the budget? Sure. Well, unfortunately, those pools of funds, um, they never overlapped. I tried. I went out through you know, direct messages to the uh, to the large backers to see if they would carry over and look to invest in the final film. One individual did. Mm. It was a smaller investment. So very grateful for that. I definitely am going to reach out to the backers again once the film releases, because I know they would be interested to at least stream it. But as far as a direct carryover from Kickstarter to investment, it was totally different people for the most part. But just like how emotionally do you recover and then say like, I got to do this again. I got to keep going. Like, how do you oh. convince yourself? Right. Sure. It's it's tough. I mean, my previous feature was the same thing. We, we fell short and we turned to, again, individual investors. And I mean, just raising money through a crowdfunding campaign or asking people directly, it's not fun to ask for money. But if it wasn't for having, you know, particular individuals around me that believed in me as a filmmaker, you know, I I wouldn't have the budget and I wouldn't be talking to you today about this film. So not not everybody can end up finding those friends and family that that may be willing to invest. So I'm very grateful and lucky and and for somebody in the same situation as I am, you know, just keep continuing on and turn over every leaf at the end of every no with, Hey, it's not a good fit for you. Do you know a handful of people that may be interested? And so, you know, the, the dialing for dollars continued, you know, after that. And you were saying the people that you surrounded yourself with, I mean, one of those people is your wife, who's also your filmmaking partner. Yep. Ulrich and I have talked about how that has not been an option for us. We are not, uh, we do not succeed at working with our partners yet. What is that like? What was the decision to work together? And what were the defining, like the boundaries of your roles on this film? Sure. So um, my wife and I, this was a passion project for both of us, particularly because my wife is part of the LGBTQ community and to see content like this created. So our titles on the film were were co-director, co-producer. During production, the goal was to be on set side by side, calling action together, calling cut together, and being that duo like the Coens or the Wachowskis or the Russos, you know, something like that. It didn't go 100% according to that plan. We have two kids. At the time of filming, they were seven and eight. So between trying to have them on set trying to work out childcare. It didn't always work out that that was the case where she could be there for every scene. So she leaned a little more heavily towards producer during production. And I leaned a little heavier towards director, which worked out because to wear both hats is kind of hard. So we kind of divided and conquered there. And there was definitely, you know, the plenty of scenes where we came together and were able to, to, to work with, with the actors and that. But of course, that being said, production is a small component you know, it was like a, like we had talked, you know, roughly um, 18 days of this four-year period. So the, the pre-production director collaboration, 
you know, that was an amazing experience working with her. She also is a, a very gifted psychic medium. So she has an intuitive sense on what the right decisions are. So as a side note, my kids, I don't know how they introduce us to their friends and teachers. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> child, what is, uh, what do your parents do for a living? Oh, my mom's a psychic and my, my dad makes movies and they just made this movie together. So yeah, fun little uh, icebreaker from the, for them, I suppose. Oh, come on. It breaks up the monotony of those conversations. I'm in the, right. I'm immersed in these like PTA-esque conversations and they are yeah. boring, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as like the story, of course, she was so involved in the story and, and casting. I mean, I gave her final say in, in, in casting and we have, have an absolutely amazing cast. And then, you know, wardrobe and set deck and, you know, those other kind of decisions. And as far as, you know, even our experience as, as filmmakers, you know, she had been more, you know, theatrical type things where those decisions, you know, would carry over into film where, you know, I had them more of the film experience, you know, as far as, you know, shot lists and blocking and that. So, so it worked out to divide those responsibilities anyway. So yeah, collaboration during pre-production and then of course in post-production, you know, as far as the edit, um, I was the editor, but you know, she was the one that got to sit on the, you know, the director's couch when, you know, <laughs> we were talking through the edit. So it was a collaboration there. So it was, it was really cool working with her on this. And to be honest, I don't think she wants to do it again. Yeah, one was <laughs> enough unless it was, you know, another passion project. You know, I, I, I think she's good. Check that off the bucket list. So you mentioned that this is a lower budget indie, but you have this fantastic commercial angle to it, right? Like the, yep. the holiday rom-com. How did you have a second unit? How did you find the cast that you did? I mean, you were shooting, what is it? Punching, punching up. I don't, what is the expression? Paul, <laughs> help me. It's like. Like leveling up from yeah, the like, previous budget. Or leveling up from the previous budget. Sure. That, that's proprietary information, but really it's like. If it is a lower budget film, I never hear about lower budget films having a second unit. You know, you have to deal with all of the very extensive motifs that a holiday rom-com requires, like the snow and the sparkle, and there's a lot to it. So I'm just, is there a way that, we're, did you save money with a smaller crew? Did you have a really connected casting director? Like, how did you punch above your weight class? Sure, so I got you. Yeah, honestly, overall, I would say that we probably stretched our budget almost two times based on in-kind services or people working below what they would normally expect to be paid because it was a passion project for a lot of people. So so that was part of it. So so that can't carry over to the listeners for maybe their film in particular unless there is being a social conscious issue that people would rally behind. But another magic trick we were able to pull off, my production designer, she pulled miracles as far as borrowing items and convincing people to make donations. I mean, in our film, we have a Christmas wedding. We probably both know what weddings cost. She was able to do it for pennies in comparison. So, so that definitely helped. Did I give enough to that answer, Liz? Well, why don't you talk about your casting director? Because you have, you know, the TV, the night court TV actress, you mm -hmm. have people who are, you know, known for queer content, people are known for holiday content, like was this all strategic? Sure. So my, my casting director, um, Carmen Alio, 
he was actually the uh, the first inclusivity advocate for a series. So inclusivity was a passion for him as well. You know, we put together a list of talent that this would be attractive to as far as the storyline. So that definitely helped us get bigger names than maybe we would have otherwise. So so that definitely played into the the, the picture as well. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back because you kind of planted a seed with COVID and the shooting schedule and the 18 days, but is it really 18 days scenario? Do you want to break that down a little bit for everyone? Sure. So again, the original schedule was supposed to be 16 days and that's just to keep costs down, you know, less hotels, less food, et cetera, et cetera. But again, that didn't go according to plan. So again, we were filming in January during the height of new COVID cases. And so being a SAG ultra low budget picture, you know, we had to follow all the SAG guidelines as far as, as COVID. And we, of course, took safety and health as the utmost pri- priority. So, so with that, with the SAG guidelines, you had the COVID safety officer, you had the PCR test two days before, you had the masks and you had, you know, all that kind of things. But of course, things are outside of your control because once the crew leaves for the night, you know, they could go home and you don't know who, who they're seeing, even if they're, you know, trying to be safe. We did have to take a quarantine pause during production. So that was something that played into the schedule. So just picture me as wearing my producer hat at that that point. We have all these people flown in. We have to pause production. Uh, we don't have the budget for you know extra hotels in, in that. So at that time, we had Rivka Reyes, one of the named actresses. She was in School of Rock with Jack Black. She was flown in from LA. And so we looked at the schedule like, okay, how do we rejiggle our whole plan schedule to get every scene with her before she has to fly back to her scheduled time in LA with this pause? So we rejiggle the schedule for that. We were filming in January. It's a Christmas movie. There should be snow on the ground. How do we get as many exterior shots in the schedule during the, the, the scheduled weeks? Two of the other named actresses had not flown in yet. They were supposed to fly in the, the next week. We rebooked those flights for a later date. So we were able to at least have a semblance of hope that, you know, this wasn't the end to production that all was not lost. We rescheduled five days for April that um, should have completed the rest of the film. I don't know if I mentioned we are filming in Michigan. So it's something to where the crew here is very limited as far as the the top level A-list crew. Yeah. So I spent about a month trying to crew up and everybody was booked because in April, the snow starting to melt and the, the Michigan productions that are happening, they're booking the top level crew. I brought in the best crew I could, but we did struggle a little bit to, to, to make our days. So we had these five days that should have finished the film. So in this case, we got all of our footage with Jill Larson and with Marsha Warfield, but we had to add in two other pickup days in June. So we flew in just a handful of the remaining talent for those pickup days. So we filmed in June, and then there was just a few remaining scenes. They were like isolated scenes on the you know the, the second side of a phone call. So they could be just like a, a little bit small, minimal crew pickup shoot. So we filmed one of those in September and one on October. 
That was taking what should have all been filmed those 16 days in January to being 19 days total. And then I said earlier that it was the equivalent cost of 24 days because having to rebook flights and to still have costs during that quarantine pause, you know, those were all there. So that added to the end budget, but overall everybody was safe. Everybody was healthy in the end. I do think the film was better because we were able to make it over time and see some of the edits because we, you know, tweaked a few scenes that we hadn't shot yet. We added some new scenes in. So everything happened for a reason. And we have a, a finished film at the end of the day. And a finished film that's coming out very soon. So tell us a little bit about working with Tello. Don't feel the need <laughs> to get into the nitty gritty. Tell me a little bit about your decision to work with Tello and why release in the way you're releasing. With distribution, I did not want to go through the standard distribution channels. I had done that with my previous film, and I wanted to definitely look for other creative routes. I mean, plan A was to to sell the film to be at Hallmark or Lifetime. We had very good discussions with both. At the end of the day, one of them had already had all of their Christmas slate lined up. It was just too late to where, while they were interested in, in the film, they didn't have the the budget or the opportunity to acquire anything. And then um, for the other, um, they'd mentioned it wasn't a brand fit. I'm not going to go there with what that might mean because it's LGBTQ content, but the those large platforms were, they ended up not being the right home. So what is the most, you know, on brand correct market for the film? It would be, a queer type network. So, and, and I will mention this here. I, I reached out to you, Liz, to, to see if you give some input. So we booked multiple sessions together as far as some creative distribution ideas. And we went back and forth and you had made some recommendations. But at the end of the day, we ended up talking with uh, Kristen, who runs Tello over there. Um, she was a, a guest of your show previously. I, I know I had enjoyed her interview. And I, I honestly didn't think it was an option until you had brought it up that, oh, they do distribution as well. So it, it's just funny that they really had released the first, if not one of the first LGBTQ Hallmark style Christmas movies back, you know, shortly after 2019, after we were searching for them. And that ended up being our, you know, our, our home for the, for the film. So at, at the time of the recording here, we haven't released yet, but for at the time of listeners hearing this, I expect it to be rocking. And from our conversations, you had and have very robust ideas. Like, you know, in the very beginning, I was incredibly impressed by how you're pitching the film, how you're finding partners, how thorough you are in your research, but also you're figuring out how to market this title even before you go to your distributor. I remember there are some drag performers in the film and I was so taken with the fact that you were going to utilize people in the film with really high social media followers to have specific moments in your marketing campaign. Can you talk a little bit about, let's say you have a film that has a pretty obvious audience, like, hey, queer people who love Christmas movies or separately people love Christmas movies and queer people. But are you also able to explain how you can identify subsets of different audiences that may not be so obvious. Oh, exactly. So kind of maybe more ambitious than 
is going to take place in reality, at least this Christmas season. Our film has um, one of probably the first drag queens in a Christmas movie. So <laughs> I got to, to know this particular performer really well during filming. We're going to actually, sounds like we're going to collaborate on a, a book that they wrote in, in the near future uh, as far as bringing that to film. So that'll be fun. We were just, you know, envisioning uh, what could, what could we do to take just a film screen and make it, you know, a, an extravagant, sparkling event. So we were putting together a coast to coast tour to have both a movie screen slash drag show. We would utilize local drag performers as far as to, you know, collaborate with, with, with their built-in audience. Of course, a, a win-win situation. So that is something to where just in the, in the scope of everything that we're, we're juggling, it, we've really limited that, uh, that tour this year. We're going to have a couple screenings. But that is something that, you know, in testing the waters with these couple screenings that I think could be really cool down the road because uh, a Christmas movie is an evergreen asset as far as it's something that, you know, every year people want to see. So to take it out there and have screenings to, to new audiences that, that may not have heard of the film the previous holiday season, it could just be a, a, a really interesting guerrilla way to get the film out there. Can you tell me a little bit about the VFX you used in the film? Oh, sure. You know, being a holiday rom-com, I was hoping that VFX would be kind of light and it'd be pretty straightforward. But at the end of the day, we had about 250 VFX shots. So I had mentioned that, you know, we were not filming all in January. So there was a lot of shots that did not have snow on the ground. So it involved adding snow in the background of shots, adding cold breath to uh, to scenes. And then you had your, uh, you know, your, your standard, you know, green screen automobile shots and adding things to phone screens. So those were, those were a given. And then, uh, you know, removing mics from removing lights that, you know, we were just like, you know what, we'll fix it in post, <laughs> that, that kind of thing, you know, combining takes, doing split screens. And then, you know, there was little things because since I was doing the editing and the VFX, you know, it was up to me and I have no budget on myself uh, to take the time to remove something. So to remove a chrome from somebody's lip or if they spike the camera to, to make them not look at the camera, you know, stuff like that. So it was a lot of work, but that, that went into, you know, that final film to where, you know, I'm very happy with the final product because I was able to fix all those little things that maybe other people wouldn't take the time or spend the, uh, spend the indie budget on. Wow. That is, I'm just thinking, I'm like producer, director, editor, VFX. <laughs> like I'm adding up a lot of these tasks. Too many hats. <laughs> Too many, a lot of hats. Well, jumping into the final six questions, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? So my first film I made, it was actually a faith-based film, which some people looking at an LGBTQ film like this third one in contrast would be like, hey, how, how did you get from point A to point B? With the Facebook film, it was, I, I had written that one and it was to bring awareness to the issue of homelessness. So we were able to raise thousands of dollars for different food banks throughout the country. Mm. So that was, that was super, super cool. And the film was also a parable or, you know, kind of an analogy and I was actually kind of trying to do what they did in Barbie, where you had like a, a bigger social message that was kind of hidden in there. So, so I really enjoyed the, you know, the, the, the Greta Gerwig uh, Barbie film for, for, for that reason in particular. But it was all about, you know, 
hey, the church is stuck in their walls and they need to practice what they preach and reach out to, to homeless people. So I currently don't have it out on a streaming platform right now, just because I don't quite have the same beliefs as I did back in uh, 2014 when I filmed it. It's just something where I, I don't think that, that, you know, God can be boxed into a binary. And the film was a little bit preachy. It was very, you know, there's only one way to heaven. Mm. And that is not where my beliefs lie today. So that's the main reason that the film isn't out there. There's a lot of, you know, good stuff as far as the performances in the film itself. I'm, I'm very happy with the film. But it's just something that, you know, I've grown both spiritually along my filmmaking journey uh, as well. So it, it's just something as far as, you know, I've, I've grown both spiritually and both an experience on my filmmaking journey. It was, uh, you know, a, a great milestone. That was my first film. And I'll look back at it, it fondly. But yeah. What's, this is my favorite question. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received or heard? So I don't know if it would be specific advice given to me directly, but it's more or less a collection of little things that I've been told or learned firsthand uh, across these uh, three feature films. One is how essential a 12-hour turnaround time is from wrap to uh, starting the next day. I mean, SAG definitely knows in their guidelines why that should be there. I will tell you uh, in a little bit what I learned and why I myself needed those 12-hour turnarounds. So, so that's mm -hmm. essential. And then just a, another thing is just to keep the location moves to at max one per day. I mean... They always say, you know, as far as to keep budgets down, you know, just have, you know, that limited cast at one location um, for, for, a, for a low budget film, but keep the location moves to one per day. We had 21 locations in this and some days did have two moves and it, it was a lot because you, you just have to have a lot, a lot, at least, you know, two hours per move to, to tear down and, and set back up and be ready to roll again. What is some bad or the worst filmmaking advice you've received or heard? I surround myself with pretty decent people. So I haven't remembered at least much bad advice. It's either gone in one ear and out the other and just like, you know, I'm not heeding that advice at all. But again, you know, maybe some observations. One would be, you know, not shot listing. You know, I have definitely been around where, you know, they just show up on set, just get your standard coverage wide, couple close-ups. And in the edit, it just feels disjointed where I'm someone that I, you know, shot list like crazy. But at the end of the day, I, I usually don't even use a shot list, but I went through the exercise to where I at least was visualizing things out of my head. But with the shot list, that first shot and the last shot of a scene are essential as far as keeping that flow of the story going without feeling like an abrupt, oh, we're in a new scene, what just happened? So shot list, super important. Another one that I've seen with producers is just focus all on the ROI to where you make the cheap, the film absolutely as cheap as possible. You know, I, I've, I've had advice, you know, you know, spend 50% of your budget on name cast to, uh, for a distributor to pick up the film. Granted that works to potentially sell the film, but I don't know how anybody can be proud of a film that is all about trying to get an ROI. I, and I guess the, the last little bit 
of some observations is not being open to feedback. You know, I've I've been around some filmmakers that, you know, they have this artistic vision that nobody else just seems to understand. So they are totally closed off to any feedback. As far as this picture and my others, you know, I showed to as many people as possible. And from the person with the smallest credit to the biggest potential credit, you know, I listened to advice from everybody and they've made some fantastic comments that led to some really good decisions in the edit that made it a a, a better paced, better film in the end. Mm. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I would love to be doing this full time. I did this film all while, while working a uh, full-time day job. So that was a hard juggle. So it'll definitely be a while before I can get to that point because um, there's definitely some milestones at the day job that I want to accomplish, you know, before crossing that path. It, it, it'll be something to where, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to transition that, you know, properly. But full, filmmaking full-time, that's the dream. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? I am going to answer that at the end of this response. So I do believe that everything happens for a reason. So I don't know if you've ever kind of um, traced back. And I mentioned this earlier, this became this, became this. Just kind of trace something back to the beginning. So um, at the beginning of my filmmaking journey, it started at, at me attending a film festival. I still can't remember why I attended the film festival. I don't think I knew any filmmakers there. I think I just saw it advertised on Facebook and I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. And it was actually a faith-based film festival. So at the time, of course, that's that's that was my interest. So I met a casting director there and I had a script I had written years before sitting in a drawer. And so I met this casting director. I made my first film and then... On set, one of the featured extras years later was like, hey, I really like how you directed that film. I wrote this feature. Can you give me input? So I gave input on the script. I went on to direct that feature. And then on that feature, the one of the actress's mother, I got to know her. And that's Melinda, who is the screenwriter for this film. And then now today... I see about five other paths that came from this film on where my next film's going to be. So it's just really interesting to to go back to the beginning on, on how we we got there. But my advice to myself would be to tell myself that hey, you can make your own film. I didn't know when I wrote that first script that it was sitting in that drawer. I didn't know you could produce your own film. My thought was that I had to sell it or something like that. I didn't know you could make your own film. So that's what I would have told myself to maybe start that filmmaking journey a little bit earlier. And last question, is making movies hard? It's the hardest fucking thing I've ever done. It's particularly <laughs> this film. I thought I did really good with having additional support systems under me, but it was such a level up that... I still had way too many hats and the stress of filming during COVID that just added on to all because really the whole time it felt like you had a, a gun to your head and that you were just one positive COVID test away from it just all is lost. And of course, it, as I discussed earlier, we were able to navigate that. And we always found a way to continue on. But just during this, I mean, really the, the film, it, it almost broke me. I mean, mentally and spiritually and in every way possible, 
there was one time in pre-production. So, you know, we had a few thousand dollars in deposits and different stuff in. The only reason that I'm going on, I am so empty. My tank is so empty. I'm doing this just to not let other people down. And I'm, oh no, I'm going to cry. I'm sitting in the car and, and you know, I'm ready to just, to just throw in the towel and just like, okay, let's lose the deposits. I can't physically do it. It's just too much. And the thought that went through my head, this was the thought that made me continue on is if one more person exists because the film exists, it's all worth it. So just as a side note, 10% of the film's proceeds, they, um, they benefit the, the Trevor Project. Uh, the Trevor Project is a, a national a nonprofit that deals with suicide prevention for LGBTQ youth. Every year, they estimate about 2 million LGBTQ youth strongly consider suicide. So if we can give back you know, the financial aspect to that cause, you know, that could potentially mean one more life exists because the film exists. Just the fact that you have this film that if somebody comes out to their family, and, you know, they're not accepted for who they love and who they are. And they're, you know, more or less excommunicated. Just think about during the holidays, how, how hard that would be to be not welcome to your family. So if they can watch this film and just escape for 90 minutes, I mean, that's another way that it might get them through a really hard time. That, that, that got me through that pre-production. And then there was also, and this comes to my, my, my comment about the, uh, the, the, the 12 hour turnaround times. The first four days of filming, I um, I probably slept four hours. So I w- woke up on day four. I was feeling creative, but I think it was just that last burst of energy I had. And then midday, it was just like a creative crash. Like it was just like all systems down. You cannot physically function, creatively, anything. I, uh, I took a nap as they were setting up the next scene. I had a good cry then too. And again, the same thought got me through. But that night I went back to the hotel and my wife, she said it took about an hour to convince me to take off my coat. And I was just like empty. I was just staring like there was nothing there. I don't remember any of this, of course. This is just her telling me. But she said I was making comments like this film broke my soul. (laughs) And it was... Uh, so, so that was that was just rough. It was hard. COVID made it hard. Filming in Michigan in, in negative ten degree weather made it hard. It was hard, but it's 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 gonna be worth it. And we want everyone to see it. And it's a lovely film. I've seen it myself. And so, uh, I think that's a without meaning to. I think you just sold everyone running in and watching it immediately as soon as they hear this podcast. But can you tell them where to go? Yeah. Uh- I'll give you just the website of the film. It's a holidayido.com. And so at, at the time of listening to this, you know, anything pertinent, any details, you, you'd be able to get any links there. Um, the film will be streaming on telefilms.com on November 10th. So you could also find it there directly. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Liz, what do you remember from our chat with Paul? I remember that this film, The Holiday I Do, is essentially... 
very supported by the podcast when you think about it like it's kind of a it's it's sweet it makes you feel like oh good i'm glad that we could do some good in the world as podcast hosts because very kindly melinda bryce who is one of the writers of the film is a podcast listener and i think has written into the show or commented or reviewed the show i remember that name and then paul reached out to me and i started consulting with him and then I introduced him to Kristen Atello because Kristen was a guest on our podcast and now the movie is premiering on Tello. So it's just like this lovely, like, I just love the synchronicity of the podcast essentially having a major force in making this movie have a new home. So that's That's what I remember is like that is it's kind of like a making movies is hard production in a very small way. Yeah. MK Bryce, Melinda K. Bryce. I'll always forget. I will never forget her her questions and emails she's written us that we've read on the show. Yeah. Very delightful. And I believe she's also a Patreon patron. I think she even gave a rating to my movie, I believe. So awesome. Melinda, you're awesome. Absolutely fantastic. But yeah, I, I, I had to miss out on this conversation. So I'll make sure to listen to this episode. But yeah. Uh, I'm really, really glad that we got to have a, a Christmas movie during the season. We had one last year. We had, you know, someone talking about a Christmas film. They the made. Lindsay Lohan movie, Falling yes. for Christmas. Which Beth watched. And I was yeah. like, you watched it without me? How did <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so it's fun. I'm really glad that we got to have a, a, a Christmas movie come out in the Christmas season, like right before Christmas, week before. So yeah, but I'll, I'll make sure to listen and check it out. You know what you should also check out? It's not going to work. But it's time for our next segment, <laughs> the game. I'm not as low as Ulrich is, but I attempted to do it there. The game, if you are not acquainted with it quite yet, is a homemade hand spun segment from our producer, Eric Toms. He puts forth an indie film hypothetical scenario for us to listen to for the first time while we record this podcast. And we weigh in what we would do if we were confronted with this same scenario. Ulrich has not heard this question. I'm going to read it right now. All right, Ulrich, you've been hired to shoot a romantic drama and things are going great. You're on day 15 of a 20-day shoot when you get a panicked call from your editor saying the last hard drive delivered to him, why him, Eric, why him, contained your last three days of filming is actually corrupt. The DIT, the editor, the DP, and you personally look at the hard drive and cannot seem to recover the footage. There is a specialist that could possibly recover the footage, but it's Friday afternoon and she, why she, Eric, why she, won't be able to tell you anything until Monday at the earliest. To make things worse, the location where you've been filming for the past few days, which was integral to the story, expires tomorrow night and will be unavailable for reshoots for months, not to mention the two actors will be wrapped by then as well. You've spoken to the producers and financiers who tell you there's no extra money for mistakes like this. You will not be given any extra days to shoot. Do you? A. Keep your schedule as is and hope the footage can be recovered. B. Lose three days reshooting the footage as a backup in case the footage cannot be recovered, knowing the rest of your schedule will be affected. C, shoot a lot of inserts at the location and the actors you're going to lose and the hopes you could possibly rebuild something in post. D, what do you do, director? What do you do? Sorry, D is other. D is whatever you want. But also, what do you do, Ulrich? What do you do? So do I have three days available? Is there three days of time before I lose the location or do I lose location in a day? 
you lose the location tomorrow night in a day. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I I would have faith that the hard drive would get restored because I've had really good uh, luck with this stuff in the uh, past. And I, I've mm-hmm. worked with some really amazing specialists who like can like rebuild all kinds of things. Like even like I've had cards where I've deleted a card and shot on the card again and they can still go what? back as long what? as I didn't delete the card again. So as long as I do don't do two deletions, you can still go back and you can get it. Even if it's been written on That's before. That's awesome. That makes me feel like amazing, a second time. Actually. Yeah. yeah. You got to go to the right people and it, it is expensive, but you can to- totally do it. So I've had had cards be saved crazily. And so a corrupt card is a lot easier than a deleted card. Because, you know, but it, it, honestly, I'm, I'm talking a little crazy because like, you know, it, it completely depends. Like, you know, you never really know, like things can completely fail, but I would feel better about a corrupted card than a completely deleted card because mm. the, the files are still there. It's just like something went wrong with the drive connecting, getting it to the computer. But like they have wizards who can like figure that out, you know? Yeah. But... Assuming like just to be safe, you know, and be ready, like to not just do the A easy answer. What I would do is I would look at the, the what I was shot over those three days and like imagine a world where I was never going to get that footage back and then rewrite the script in a way that would fit changing those scenes or having those scenes, scenes altered and then take that day and like shoot at least part of the day. Hopefully it's only half a day, but if not the whole day and just shoot a connector, a connector, right? So like that mm. gets us from one part of the story to the other part of the story yes. without that n- being needed to happen. Like, so you basically can save yourself, get out of that storyline and like yeah. just go on to something else. Or I would also just analyze the script and just make sure that like, oh, is there a way that if we just lifted this chunk out, the movie still makes sense. And then we can like, fi- we can shoot something different to go there. That'll, that'll work you know, as a replacement. So like first to try to figure out if there's a world where you can make the movie work without having to shoot anything new right then with that location. But if you couldn't, then figure out the smallest, quickest thing that you can shoot that'll, that'll bridge the movie and make it all work. And then, you know, figure out that missing runtime later as, as a backup, you know, but still like, you know, think that, okay, I'm still going to be all right. Like I'll, I'll have my, I'll probably have my footage, but if I don't, now I'm not completely screwed. So that's that's my that's what I would do. What about you? What would you do in this situation? It's like a perfect answer, Alric. But I love that connector <laughs> idea. It's really good. I I kind of thought of some schlocky thoughts. I was like, well, maybe you can bring in a second unit to go shoot plates of the location and then shoot the actors in just like the most pivotal moments in front of a green screen. And like I don't know why the location is so pivotal, and so it's very difficult to think like. You know, I mean, it's romantic drama. I've seen many, many, many romantic dramas. I'm like thinking maybe there's like like a library or like an attic or something kind of like pinnacle of an earthing some sort of mystery in the movie. Like what exactly would be such an integral location? And then like what's the core of that that needs to be captured in that moment? And it's like that's the fraction of the scene you reshoot with your actors but I would say that it may require a second unit in order to be efficient with your one day that you have. And so that's may not, you may not have those resources. Yeah. But I really like the idea of connector scene and gosh, I, 
I but something you have to look at what you shot the past three days like that's the most important thing and you said that already it's like and then you have to think like of these three days what can I lose what can I lose right right that's, that's the main message um it's a good question Eric you know I, I yeah. was like afraid to answer it I was really glad you went first <laughs> yeah the other thing I, I was thinking about is like you know pretty much any location that's integral in a, in a romantic drama or pr- probably in most movies you could swip out, switch out for another location later. And like if it's referenced earlier in the script, you know, that could be handled with pickups or, or voiceover even, you know, or, or hand, ha- like handy editing. Like you could just take out the part where like, oh, we're going to go to the old mine and then be like, oh, <laughs> and then they went like, well, it was really funny. And then they went we to the to old mine. <laughs> we, we had to go to this uh, wharf instead you know like that was uh <laughs> too bad that mine, that mine we talked about it closed down so we went to the wharf you know i mean there's all kinds of schlocky ways that yeah. you can save yourself if you have to but i i do think it's it would be if if possible like give yourself something that you can fall back on just just as a as a in case yeah. you know and i mean as someone who like in their movie <laughs> like cut like five to six scenes because we we just ran out of time you know while shooting and then in post cut another like you know five to six scenes that we shot like there's always ways to figure things out and like you can solve story problems yeah something that you thought was so important might not have been all that important you know so like there's definitely you can there's lots of puzzle pieces that you can move around when you're making a movie yeah, and like worst case scenario, like you, you come back and you have a movie that has a little hole and then you're like, okay, well, let's go raise some more money or like let's get real creative, real indie, real gorilla and let's let's fill the hole some way, you know, so. I'm curious what other people have to say about this. So if there's another solution we haven't mentioned, email us at podcast at making movies is hard dot com. You can always send us a question, comment or suggestion there. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want to shout out the ISA, the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. They have a lot of amazing resources. Head to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thank you to Paul Schneider for coming on the show, to our editor Jeff Reimut for doing the editing, Robert Jones for handling all of our social media, and our producer Eric Toms for being awesome. But most of all, thanks to all of you for listening, and talk to you all next week. 